You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. As the new year turned over, as 2018 gave way to 2019, I realized that something was going on in my house. It started off small. I noticed that things of mine were going missing. Then there was more obvious change that involved the reorganization of rooms and closets. I didn't think too much of it, but then one day I I opened my shirt drawer and my shirts were folded in a way I had never seen before. They were in these little triangles. And then I looked over into the corner at the Goodwill pal and I noticed that the Goodwill pal had grown by three times and most of it was my stuff. So I I finally went to Vanessa, I said, hey, what's going on here? And she says, so there's this woman named Marie Kondo. And I'm like, Marie Kondo, I don't know who that is. Well, it turns out that this woman Marie Kondo is some kind of international superstar, this, this, this tidy up guru who, who has this, uh, this, this New York Times bestseller all because she has uh, uh, created this way of organizing people's homes, of, of tidying up people's houses. So uh, this method called the Marie method uh, is her, her best-selling idea. And so I needed to get to the bottom of what was going on in my house. So I got on Netflix and I watched one episode of her show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Now, the gist of the show is that this couple that has a messy home hires Marie Kondo to come in and get their house decluttered and organized. And that's what she does. She comes to save the day by giving them a method for decluttering and organizing their house. Now, the first thing she does after walking through the house is she has the couple get all of their items of a particular uh, genre. Let's just call, call it clothing. To get all of their clothing and to pile it up in a big pile in the middle of the room. And then she has them stare at it. And she wants them to lock in with the idea that most of the stuff that they have in this pile is unnecessary. And then they go through this pile, they pick it up one by one, and they make a decision. They ask one simple question about each item in this pile. Does it spark joy? Now, if they pick it up and it doesn't spark joy, then she has them talk to the item and then put it in a basket to get rid of it. I'm going to say that again. She has them talk to the item and then put it in a basket to get rid of it. Now I told Vanessa, if I see you talking to a t-shirt, I'm getting my anointing oil out and I'm going to get the devil out of my house. All right. Told her I'm not playing. Oh, and by the way, the, the no more than 30 books rule, I knew she was cray cray when I heard that rule. I'm more than 30 books. I wish I would. Uh, Now, listen, as I watched this episode, 
of Marie Kondo's show on Netflix. As, as, I, as I watched this episode, there was a thought that occurred to me. It's nice to have your house tidy, but Marie Kondo isn't just selling the idea of a tidy house. That's not what's making her rich and famous. She's offering the fantasy of control, the ability to make the messiness around you fall into line with your plans. She's promising the ability to completely surround yourself exclusively with things that spark joy. Happy things. Those are the only things around you now. Happy things. You can control everything around you. All the stuff that you don't want, you can just get rid of it. And although you can Marie Kondo your messy house, the, 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 the reality is that we live under an illusion if we think we can Marie Kondo our messy lives. That we can surround ourselves exclusively with things that spark joy and make us happy. That we can control the things around us with enough diligence or, or, or with enough planning or enough money. We can control everything around us. The mess that's going on, I can get it under control. Does anyone know that feeling this morning? No. Oh, I'm the only one that's going to tell the truth in here. All right, all right. We know what this is like. To grasp for control, but it is a damnable lie that you can have it. You cannot have it. You can search for it. You can grasp for it. You can fight for it. But control is the one thing that you just cannot have. We don't have the luxury or, of taking it or leaving it based upon whether or not it gives us joy when it comes to many things in life. Sometimes we have to deal with things that don't give us joy. We have to deal with difficult circumstances hard providences, health challenges, and financial struggles. We find ourselves in crisis situations. Does it give us joy? No. No, it does not. But the more important question for God's people is not, does this give me joy? We have to ask instead, how does my faith in this situation give God glory? How do you think about the crisis situations in your life? How do you think about the crisis situations that arise in your life? What do you do when life is messy? In our text for today, we're invited into these very issues. We're invited to explore these very themes. And we're going to approach this passage this morning through two points where we see the crisis and the covenant. The crisis and the covenant. So let's look at our first point, the crisis. Now, after, after the stunning appearance of God in the flame, in the burning bush, and after the revelation of God's name, Moses is locked and loaded. He is ready to roll. He's ready to go and gather God's people to tell them the good news, to, to deliver to them the glad tidings, and also to speak truth to power by confronting Pharaoh in his, in his throne room. And you can imagine when, when Moses gathered the people together, you can imagine how this news broke over them. They had been longing for this day. 
They have been hoping and wishing and praying for this day that they would hear some news that God was going to act on their behalf to set them free from Egypt. In fact, after Moses delivers this glad message through Aaron, chapter 3, verse 31 says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. It, it, was, it was the most welcome news to hear that God was going to act. Now, after this encouraging response of the people, we pick up the story in verse 1. And Moses and Aaron are riding high as they go into, into Pharaoh's court in order to deliver that prophetic word to Pharaoh. They go in boldly. They go in courageously. They go in with high expectations that God is going to drop the boom on Pharaoh right now, quick, fast, and in a hurry. That's what they're ready for. All right, now check it out. This is what actually happens. They come in and stand before the most powerful man in the world, and they say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But the response they get back knocks the wind right out of them. This is the response they get back in verse two. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, here's the deal. By the end of this thing, Pharaoh's going to know exactly who the Lord is. This text is setting us up to understand the ultimate nature of the conflict. The conflict is not ultimately between Pharaoh and Moses. It's not ultimately between Pharaoh and the people of Israel. The battle is ultimately between the Lord and the gods of Egypt represented in Pharaoh. And God is setting us up to understand this is the nature of the conflict. And then he is going to like he's going to pick them apart. And this is the setup right off the bat. We see something here. I want you all to hear me in this text. We are set up to understand this one idea in addition to some others we're going to hit. If God does not bring you to repentance, he will bring you to judgment. If he does not bring you to repentance. He will bring you to judgment. This is what we see play out in the life of Pharaoh. And not only do we see that he will bring you to either repentance or to judgment. We also see that he's very merciful and patient in the process. This is just the first of many overtures, many words to Pharaoh where he had the opportunity to turn. But he fails to turn. He does not repent. And so this is the Lord dialing it up. Beginning the process of redemption. Here's the deal. This is where the fight lies. The battle is not belong to Moses. The battle does not belong to Israel. The battle belongs to the Lord. But this response was not what Moses, Aaron and Israel were expecting. It's not it's not what they they were hoping for. They expected redemption to be an immediate Tidy work. But things got messier and more complicated for the moment. Because not only was Pharaoh dismissive and defiant in the face of their request, 
He makes a subversive move to create distance between the mediator and the people by calling Moses' words lying words. I want you to understand something. At the very beginning of this series, I told you that there are different kinds of pharaohs. And there, there, there are multiple ways for us to appreciate what it means to be in Egypt. But one thing you need to see that's consistent is that all pharaohs work this way. This is what pharaohs do. They create distance between the mediator and his people. They seek to drive a wedge to create distrust of the mediator. This is what Pharaoh does. He gets the people to believe that Moses is the villain, not him. You see this in the text. You see, crisis can be disorienting in this way and cause you to confuse friends and foes. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But I want you to see, I want you to see the bad news is broken to the Israelite captives. In verse 14, we see that they inevitably fail to meet the quota. Pharaoh ratchets up. Pharaohs always demand more and give less. No straw. They go out scrambling for their own straw and their stubble to make bricks. Their lives become more difficult. But here's the deal. God is not interested, as we said before, in making their life in Egypt more comfortable. He's not trying to get them to, to grow in comfort under the rule of Pharaoh. And what the Lord does in this action is not, is not evil. The Lord is not doing evil to them. He's turning up the pressure on Pharaoh to show them the true colors of Pharaoh and the true reality of Egypt. All the Lord is doing is is reminding them. He's giving them a very tangible reminder of what Egypt is and who Pharaoh is. This is is Pharaoh's fault. He's the one who's doing the evil. But look, there there are the, the taskmasters of Egypt and then they create these foremen who are Israelites that they have rule over those who are enslaved. And what happens is after the Israelites cannot meet the quota, the taskmasters bring the foreman in and they beat them and interrogate them. And after they're beaten and interrogated, they appeal to Pharaoh and they say, what's the deal? How could you do this to your servants? It's your fault. You've taken away our means of production, but you're demanding more from us. And all Pharaoh does is throw it back in their faces and says, you're idle. You're idle. He's he's gaslighting. He's making it seem like they're the problem and he's the problem. When the Israelite foremen leave Pharaoh's court, Moses and Aaron are outside waiting to see the outcome. And when the foremen see Moses and Aaron, they light them up and they say this. They say, the Lord, look on you and judge the Lord curse you. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. This is your fault, Moses. They had lost sight of the fact that this was Pharaoh's fault. And Pharaoh was just subversively creating distance between them and the one that God had appointed to work on their behalf. Verse 22. The foremen lament to Moses. They grieve to Moses. But what's Moses do? 
What, what does Moses do? Does he return it back to them and say, hold up, hold up, y'all. Don't blame me. This is fair. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't get into a back and forth with, with, his, with his brothers and sisters. No, Moses turns right to the Lord. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Now, this is this this captures the crisis in which the Israelites are situated. And I want you to I want you to appreciate something. We're invited into this crisis. We're invited into this crisis to see how the Lord deals with his people, how the Lord engages his people to observe the Lord's ways with his people so that when we face crisis, we will have resources and framework for understanding our lives in the context of crisis. But there are some temptations that we need to name when it comes to crisis. What, what are the temptations we face when dealing with crisis? First, we face the temptation of accusing friends and excusing enemies. Accusing friends and excusing enemies. When friends bring the word of life to us, when friends bring the word of truth to us, we accuse them like they're out to get us, like they don't understand. They don't really get it. And we excuse enemies. Look at verse 21. You have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. Facts. They already stunk in the eyes of Pharaoh. But they treat Moses and Aaron as if they're, they accuse their friends and they excuse their enemies. Of course, Pharaoh's going to do this to us because you provoked them. What other choice did he have? It's like, no, 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 no. Don't excuse Pharaoh. He's evil. He's evil. Rejecting the help and community the Lord has given you and making peace with false gods and coping is a temptation of being in a context of crisis. Don't accuse your friends and excuse your enemies. You need, you need to remember where your true enemies are and who your true friends are. Another temptation when dealing with crisis is the temptation to control. The temptation to control. Control, listen to me, control at its root is trying to be your own God. I'm the only one who can determine what's best for me. I'm the only one who can define what is best for my course of life. I'm the only one who is trustworthy. I'm the only one that sees things clearly here. I'm the only one who can make it right. When facing crisis, the lust for control is simply a self-salvation project. It's self-salvation. I can and must take care of this because I cannot give myself over to anybody else. Control is one of the most destructive lies we believe. It's one of the most destructive lusts of our souls. Whenever you feel the need to grasp for control, you are making a very definitive statement about who God is. You're demoting him and you're making a very definitive statement about who you are. You're promoting yourself. Can you really trust yourself? Can you really see things with that kind of clarity? 
I've used this illustration before, but it bears repeating. If you are fit to control your life, then which you ought to control it? Your fifth grade you? No, your fifth grade you was an idiot, right? No, what about your high school you? Your high school you was an idiot too. What about your college you with all the bright ideas and education? Oh, not your college you. No, that won't work. Well, what about your mid-20s you? Yeah. No, not them either. Well, what about in your 30s you? No, your 50-year-old you would look at that person and say, what a joke. What a fool. They had no clue. They were green. The breath still smells like Similac. What you-, <laughs> you don't get life? And what about your 50-year-old you? No. Your 70-year-old you would say, nah, you just don't get it yet. Listen, there is never a point at which you won't look like an idiot in the eyes of eternity. So what makes you feel like you are fit to control things? What makes you feel like you have the, the error-proof interpretation of your life and its circumstances? That right there ought to be the beginning of you letting loose of control. You are not trustworthy to control your life. That's the bad news. But the good news is you don't have to. You don't have to. Okay? It's a temptation to control. But it all amounts to a self-salvation project. The one, it's one of the greatest... It's one of the greatest but unsus, unsuspected expressions of pride. That you can control it. And, and I want us to remember that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. That ought to make you tremble. That ought to make us tremble. God will wreck you in order to recover you. When you're swollen with pride, the Lord will wreck you in order to recover you. If he has to take a wrecking ball to you in order to recover the humble you, he will in love. But control is a temptation. Uh, Another temptation is the temptation of cynicism. The temptation to foster a self-protective detachment from life. To scrutinize everything to the point that nothing and nobody is trustworthy or genuine. I've been burned. I've been hurt. So I'll close down. I'll resist vulnerability. I'll keep my expectations low and I'll nurse a perception of life that's devoid of resurrection possibility. Cynicism. Is a temptation. The temptation to pretend. Now this one is going to ring true for all of the successful people who have made a career that's risen a bit and they've gotten education that, that seems pretty fancy and impressive. The temptation to pretend. Some, some people carry a lot of shame when they face crisis because they believe that they are under, they're, they're under the impression that they're supposed to be able to carry this. They're supposed to be able to handle this by themselves. And so how are you doing? I'm good. I'm great. Man, things are great. And then guess what? You, you can't pretend forever. And the people in your life don't find out until you're in absolute crisis and things have completely blown up. When if you had just been humble enough and honest enough, back then you may have never actually wound up in this crisis. That's why pastors and elders are here. That's why community is here. Don't wait until it's about to... Don't wait till the whole building is engulfed in flames and in, in order to share the struggles. It's, it's a temptation to believe and pretend and perform like you can handle this on your own. God did not, did not design our lives 
to be handled alone. He did not design us to face crisis alone. No, you're not sufficient and you don't have to be ashamed for that. You don't have to be ashamed. Don't believe the lie of individualism. Mature adults need others to work through crisis. I'm going to name one more temptation. There are plenty more. Maybe you can make a list with your community. As you look at your life and you consider the times you've felt like you're in crisis and the the things you've turned to, the temptations you have felt. The last temptation is the temptation of prayerlessness. When we face a crisis, some of us are tempted to talk to our parents. We talk to our friends. We talk to our coworkers. We talk to everybody but the Lord. The one person we must talk to. The only one who can really do anything substantive about it. I want you to look at this. This is important. In the text, the, the foreman, they talk about, uh, they talk, they're, they're not turning to God, they're turning to Moses. But what you see in Moses, what is so powerful is that Moses doesn't then begin to complain about God regarding the circumstances. He complains to God about the circumstances. And what does God say? What'd you say, Moses? What, what, you talking to me? You talking to me? I, no, that's not what God does. God begins to pastor Moses. Do you think that God is scandalized when you bring your, your fears to him and when you, when you name your concerns and struggles before him? When you bring your doubts to him, doubt is simply the presence of uncertainty. And we all have doubts to some degree. But there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is when you conclude with beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to live your life apart from God because he is not trustworthy. And you move on from him. When you reject his counsel and you walk in disobedience to his his revealed will. That's different from doubt. We're invited to bring our doubts to God. And God begins to pastor Moses through this. He begins to pastor Moses through the problem. And ultimately what he does is he leads him from the crisis to the covenant. He he directs Moses' eyes from the crisis to the covenant. And if there's one thing that I can leave you with this morning, it's this. What do you do when you're facing crisis? You must direct your gaze from the crisis To the covenant, to the covenant faithfulness of the Lord, what he has promised to do and be. Now, that brings us to the second point. Look at chapter six, verses two through eight. He begins. He these are the bookends of what the Lord says. I am the Lord. He begins to lay it out and then he finishes. I am the Lord. Pharaoh doesn't know who I am. And up to this point, the patriarchs really haven't seen me really get going. But I'm about to tell you what I'm fitting to do out here in Egypt. I'm about to make this thing change completely. Look at what he says. I want you to notice the emphasis on the Lord's action. You may feel weak. You may not have any power. You don't have any control. You feel vulnerable right now. You are sad right now. You feel beat down right now. You are despairing right now. You can't handle it anymore. But I appeared. 
I established my covenant. I have heard the groaning. I have remembered my covenant. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. I am Yahweh. Do you see the emphasis? He's saying, Moses, Moses, it's like he grabs Moses' face. Moses is looking at the crisis. It's like the Lord grabs his face and he says, Moses, look at the covenant, dog. Look at the covenant. Do you, you, you don't know yet the fullness of who I am. But I am the Lord who shows up in a situation where, where I'm in the bush. It doesn't get consumed. And trust, trust me, your, your, your people are in the fire right now, but they will not be consumed because I am the Lord. I'm going to bring you out. And we have to listen, listen, this is why this matters to us. This is how this hits the ground for us. You have to continually keep in mind the first audience of this book. It's Israel in the wilderness. They have come out of Egypt, but they're not yet in the promised land. They're going to encounter many challenges to their faith while they're in the desert. There are going to be scary things that they face. They're going to face rival clans and tribes that they have to overcome. Uh, you know, the, the Hittites, the, the Jebusites, the, the termites, the mosquito bites. He's he going to face all of these people in the wilderness. And what the Lord is doing is he's giving them this story. And he's saying, look back. This is the hermeneutic. This is the interpretive grid with which you should look into your present and your future. Now, friends, we're on this side of the cross, but we're not yet in the promised land. We're not yet in glory. But the Lord is trying to frame up our, our interpretation of the events of our lives. How are we to survive crisis? How are we to process times of crisis? What do we do when we hit points in which crisis crashes into the covenant promises of God and seem to negate or override the covenant promises. How do we live in that space? Like the Israelites, this is what I'm saying, you have to learn to read your story backwards. You have to learn to read your story backwards. Every Christian has been given the last chapter of their story. The last chapter of your story is absent from the body, present with the Lord. And then the epilogue is joy forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the end of your story. And you have to read your story in that light. Remember, God is the ultimate divine author. And there isn't an author in this world that doesn't develop their characters with tension. You have the most boring, the flattest characters where there is no tension introduced into their lives. And God is not out to produce boring, flat characters. He wants to produce the most robust characters in his story. And so those tensions are introduced by his sovereign activity and by his providential permission. Okay? God is developing these characters. This is what God is doing. He doesn't waste suffering on his people. He redeems suffering. You going through hard times? God is in the mix. They wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have known that God could solve problems unless they had problems. They wouldn't have had a testimony unless they had a test. 
God brings them through this so that they will be a people that can announce from personal experience. You in a tough time? You in crisis? You need to look to the covenant. Look to the promises of the, of the Lord of heaven. And he will bring you out. He can bring you through. How do you handle times of crisis? How do you read this story in the desert? I want you, I want you to see the people nestled in between the word and the promise of God. And it's awaiting fulfillment. They're waiting. They have his word. They have his promise. But they're waiting for it to come true. Here's how you ultimately wait. Here's how you ultimately wait. Though you may not be able to choose circumstances in your life that spark joy. The one thing that ought to keep you buoyed up in the context of crisis is that when the Lord looked at this heaping pile of sinners, he looked at you and it sparked joy for him. And he wasn't willing to throw you out. He has had countless reasons to trash you by now, but he has not given up on you. He, he looks at you and it sparks joy for him. And because you know that with absolute certainty because of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that your savior looks at you in joy. You know that no matter what kind of crisis you're going through now, he's going to use it. He's going to redeem it. And he's ultimately going to lift it from your life. You must read your story backward. And the end of your story, friends, if you know Jesus, is resurrection. That's the end of your story. And just like Jesus read his story backwards, and he stayed faithful when he had questions. You know, there was another mediator who had questions he brought before the Lord. My God, is there any way for this to pass? Yet not my will, but your will be done. Do you see Jesus dignifying you bringing your questions and your struggles before God. By my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was another mediator who had questions. But guess what? He was reading his story backwards. And he knew at the end of his story was every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He knew that the end of his story was I am the resurrection and the life and I hold the keys to death in Hades. He knew this was the end of his story and so he was faithful in the crisis. Will you be faithful in the crisis? Will you turn your eyes from the crisis to the covenant promises of God. Will you throw off the temptations to accuse your friends and excuse your real enemies? Will you throw off the temptation to try and control things and submit yourself under the hand of God? Will you throw off the temptation to cynicism? Will you stop pretending that everything's okay when it's a mess? Will you throw off the temptation to prayerlessness and run to the Father who loves you? Do you see in the text that the Lord is tender toward his ailing people? He's tender toward people with a broken spirit under harsh bondage. So he invites you to turn to him in faith, in hope, and in love, knowing that he is the Lord. He will hear your groaning. He will remember his covenant 
He will bring you out. He will deliver you. He will redeem you. He will take you to be his people. He will be your God and he will bring you into the land. He will give it to you. He is the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your strong promises, your unbreakable promises, your indestructible promises, your promises that cannot be overcome by any evil in this world. We pray, Father, that you would help us to remember these things, to turn our hearts to you, and to trust you in the midst of crisis, knowing that even there you can redeem, and even there, if it's your holy will, you will bring yourself glory through our faithful endurance. So, Lord, help us to receive it with humble hearts, trusting in your fatherly care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.